0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. Getting COVID is bad enough, but what if you have cancer too? We'll talk to a doctor who's studying how cancer patients are impacted by COVID-19.
1: Is one of the uh, problems in fighting this virus the unwillingness to follow science? Why are people so skeptical when doctors and scientists talk?
2: The bright lights of Las Vegas, they have been dim since the pandemic started. We'll look into how a city
1: that thrives on tourism is trying to hang on right now. We will also explore how the childcare crisis is having a devastating impact on working moms. Those among the highest risk groups of dying or getting seriously ill from the virus are cancer patients the disease weakens the body and treatments like radiation and chemotherapy can lower the immune system.
2: UCLA now starting a clinical trial that will address this high risk group. Dr. Beth Carlin is director of the Cancer Population Genetics Group at the UCLA Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center. Doctor, what are you looking for in this trial?
3: This trial is actually sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. It's being done throughout the U.S. But what we're looking for are basically some of the comorbidities, that cancer patients have that may exacerbate the, can- the COVID infection. Um, what type of treatment modifications? You know, what, how does COVID infection alter the outcome from your cancer? Did we need to change the way you got your chemo or radiation because of the COVID pandemic? Um, and what are the risks to your survival? What's the social isolation? What do the healthcare disparities we're so we're so focusing on? Um, Does that impact us, not just because of the social factors, but there are different susceptibilities um, amongst different populations? And how does that interplay with cancer?
1: Do we have any early clues?
3: Well, we have data out of China from the WHO showing that the mortality, the risk of dying from COVID, if you are a cancer patient, is at least twice that of the general population. And I think what we're trying to understand is why. Um, cancer patients who uh, test positive for COVID and would like to enroll in this study will collect blood, we'll look at their x rays, we'll see, in fact, um, does the pulmonary manifestation, the immune modif- the immune manifestations with the cytokine storm we've been hearing about, the blood clotting, and all the effects of COVID, how are they exacerbated? Because cancer has many of the same pathways involved. We have a higher risk of having, you know, a blood clot if you're a cancer patient. Of getting pneumonia and all, um, many of the risk factors that we've come to understand are risk factors for cancer, older age, smoking, obesity, are the same risk factors we're hearing about to catch COVID and get sick from COVID. So that's really the interplay. Um, There is what we're doing in this study, really across the country, is to try to get enough of a population with enough diversity. In that population to see how this interplay works out. And I think one of the things about having a site here at UCLA is our diverse population and being able to contribute to that large U.S. and then worldwide data set to understand how we can perhaps, you know, prepare for and act against how COVID may alter the course of cancer.
2: I guess if I'm a patient, I have many worries, right? One is Mm -hmm. not getting COVID. The other is still getting the treatment that I'm supposed to get so I can hopefully beat cancer. Where are we now versus when things were getting started in March and, you know, places were closing up shop left and right?
3: What a great question. What a really insightful question. So, um, because we have a better sense about masking, social distancing and ways to prevent transmission, um, It is a bit easier in terms of if you have surgery for cancer. Um, It used to be that you had no visitors, and you're so isolated, and it's so hard to get up, get out of bed, and recover when you're really alone. We set up things with Zooms and things like that, but now at least since we understand some of the transmissibility and some of the appropriate precautions, all patients are screened. Uh, to make sure they don't have COVID before undergoing surgery. And in most cases, they're allowed at least, you know, one visitor with them, which really does, I'm a cancer surgeon. So really seeing these patients and seeing their recoveries, it really is helped by having a family member or friend there with them. Um, We were delaying all surgeries, even, I don't want to say cancer surgeries elective, but we were often having to delay it at the beginning because of concerns about COVID transmission, having enough, Support ventilator support. If we had a real surge in cases, and now that we have a better way and understanding of transmission and public health prevention, we're much we're really back to normal, pretty much in terms of being able to deliver the care that's required.
2: Dr. Beth Carlin directs the Cancer Population Genetics Group at UCLA, Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center. Doctor, thanks.
1: Is the anti-science movement slowing down our ability to stop the virus? Are people not taking proper precautions to avoid getting sick because, well, because they simply don't believe or care what scientists and doctors have to say?
2: Holden Thorpe, chemist and editor-in-chief of the science family of journals. Uh, Holden, have we ever been a science-based country to begin with?
4: Well, I think that we have seen a building of anti-science sentiment in the country, but it's been over many decades. If you think back to uh, World War II and the Manhattan Project, now, thankfully, we feel uh, more nuanced things about nuclear weapons. But At the time, the Manhattan Project was seen as this great triumph of of science to serve the nation. And that was probably the high watermark for trust in science in the country. And over the ensuing 75 years, uh, we've seen that erode. And it especially started to become important when uh, running against the environment became something that Republican politicians found to be politically useful. And I think over that, ever since then, and with the advent of, uh, you know, quantitative polling, uh, I think we've seen that it's politically useful to run against science, and that has led to a building of an anti-science sentiment in the country, so which is, is, it, is kind of coming to <laughs> all together here in COVID.
2: Is it just the politicization of everything that we do now that is the main factor? for this distrust because it still comes back to everybody's got a job and I'm not going to go to anybody else's job and tell them what to do. There's a reason why you guys are the scientists because this is what you spend your life doing and you know what you're talking about.
4: Yeah, I think there's a thing that goes along with it that is just a general mistrust of expertise that is building and a lot of people who feel now, you know, that they can read a few things online and become an expert on something. So I think that's, proceeded in parallel. And it, it it's, I think it fills a basic human uh, need to know things. And so if you can find a way to know some things on your own, then it's tempting to believe that you know just as much as somebody who's spent their whole lifetime uh, studying things.
1: Yeah, but, but, but thinking that you know more than you know is one thing, but holding views that are so uh, at variance with what Really are scientific facts, and I'm thinking in particular, Mike and I both recently watched a a documentary. I'm not going to mention the name and give it a plug, but it's about the growing numbers of Americans in particular who firmly believe the Earth is flat. And you watch this documentary, and these are people who otherwise seem to be fairly bright people, and they're articulate, and they lay out their reasons why they are sure— the Earth is flat, so I guess my real question, Holden, is: Are we just getting dumber?
4: No, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's more. Um, I think it's more about uh, the trends and the political uh, aspects are certainly very important. Uh, and I think there's another thing, which is that science, in particular, has always felt that. If we're doing our thing and following our data and uh, posting, you know, scientifically accurate uh, uh, thing you know, research articles, that the rest of it will take care of itself. And that's a, a faulty notion that we've had of this, of science being apolitical, which has led a lot of science to be disengaged. And one of the things that I think you're seeing... Uh, particularly from us and our um, peer publications, is a call for science to be much more engaged in politics and the public discourse than we have been, and not to fall back on this notion that says, oh, science is apolitical and it's uh, disengaged from what's going on in the public. That thinking has led to uh, you know, environmental degradation and affirmative action falling apart and now, you know, public health uh, disasters. And so science needs to, to get in the arena uh, and engage in the public discourse. And I believe that that uh, line of thinking certainly has, has contributed to the situation that we're in.
2: Holden Thorpe, chemist and editor-in-chief of the Science family of journals.
1: The seductive lore of Sin City tempts many people to risk their savings and the chance to make a fortune, all with just one roll of the dice or spin of the roulette wheel. But not as many people now are in the gambling mood when it comes to their money or health. Las Vegas has been hit hard with a massive loss of visitors.
2: City built on tourism, so how can it survive if there are hardly any tourists? Jeremy Aguero is principal at the economic analytics firm Applied Analysis in Las Vegas. Jeremy, how does this current crisis compare to other ones the city's gone through? We remember the drop off after 9 11 or the Great Recession. Obviously, the Great Recession was longer, but how does this compare?
0: In terms of order of magnitude, I don't think there's any doubt that, that the immediacy of it uh, places it beyond anything that we've seen sort of in modern history. Um, you make an excellent point that the Great Recession lasted longer, right? Um, you know, we lost about 200,000 jobs over two and, a, two and a half years during the Great Recession. We lost 250,000 jobs as a state uh, in about two months uh, with the COVID-19 crisis. Now, obviously, some of that's been added back as we sort of see, seek the stabilization sort of in a pre-vaccine environment. But if we look at job losses, if we look at that uncertainty, if we look at the direct impact on our core tourism economy, um, I think it is uh, worse than anything that I've had during at least my 25-year career and anything that I think has happened in most of our lifetimes.
2: So take me through some of the layers of it, because I think, okay, tourism hit in Vegas. The hotels aren't doing a lot of business. There's not a lot of people vacationing. Uh, The casinos are doing what they can to, to make things safe but it's more than that, right? This is a city that also runs on conventions and we're not getting big groups together anymore.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I think all those things are related to each other, right? I mean, obviously visitor volume is incredibly important. 42 million visitors come to Las Vegas every year. And, um, you know, we closed down uh, Las Vegas for uh, uh, over two months. Um, The you're also right that as the economy has opened back up, more hotels are opening, we're seeing occupancy start to slowly rise and come back. But a lot of that is leisure type of travel, which has a tendency to be more regionally oriented and, and generate more revenue for, in terms of visitor, excuse me, less revenue in terms of visitor spending. You also make an excellent point relative to those segments of the market that are going to take longer to come back, conventions trade shows um, special event type activities those those type of things obviously those are going to take more time uh, to come back because of advanced planning and because of the nature of that type of travel and there's no doubt that our resort properties are, are being you know resourceful and creative in terms of creating opportunities to fill hotel rooms but there's a balancing act there as well right the the, the need to, to, to want to try and bring in additional customers but at the same time you know respecting um, what the expectation is of those customers and and when and, and and what offerings are available uh, to those that you can have staying in your hotel.
2: What does this do to a city that is used to functioning at a certain level? I mean, there's a steady roll of people coming in, coming out, and that's how the city works in terms of tax base and money that's being made and people having jobs to go and work at some of these big resorts because if it's, you know, below 50% capacity, you don't need all the people that you used to have to need and now They're out of work.
0: Yeah, without a doubt, and and the, you know when you you consider that about a third of our workforce is in leisure and hospitality, and when you consider the ripple effects associated with that, you know suppliers and people going back to their neighborhoods and spending those wages and salaries, it's about fifty percent of our workforce that's either directly or indirectly dependent upon our leisure and hospitality industry. So the magnitude of that is significant, and it's a big reason why our unemployment rate rocketed up to the highest rate of any area in the country that's ever been reported. Right? I mean that that. You know, incredibly problematic. You know, at the same time, you know, when we're talking about the economy sort of coming back and finding its footing and all those type of things, obviously the 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 the, the tax base is 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 critically important. And it's both an economic issue and a fiscal issue. What I what is the other piece of that, however, is the level of stimulus that's been pumped into the United States economy. I mean, two point three plus trillion dollars of stimulus is largely masking some of that. We've actually seen, you know, uh, some of the numbers not be as low as what we expected. We've seen, um, you know, some households stabilize, even though they're not being employed because of that extra $600 that, that was coming uh, from the federal government. You know, the combination of those direct payments has bolstered things like taxable retail sales and stabilized some of our, our markets here. Is it, you know, has it anyway any way been, you know, panacea for the challenges that Las Vegas is, is facing? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it may just be delaying some of the additional pain. Vegas has benefited significantly uh, from that stimulus that has flowed in, and it's helped really stabilize some of those tax receipts, at least over the past couple of months.
2: This is an unscientific poll, but it seems like every couple years to me, or at least a few years, somebody writes some article that says the way that Vegas is built, and even you know Nevada, if we expand it all the way out, it's not sustainable if there's a big crisis. Is this it? Or do you put any credence behind those claims?
0: Yeah, look, I really don't. I mean, um, you know, those, those articles have been going back uh, all the way until the early 1900s uh, that Las Vegas wasn't sustainable. And ever since, you know, gaming was legalized in the state of Nevada in 1931, you know, everyone wants to use some cliche like, you know, where we just went bust or we rolled craps. I mean, <laughs> it's a it, good it's headline, right? Of, right. It's just kind of silly, but I understand, uh, I understand why people view it that way. Look, Las Vegas has proven itself resilient and resourceful through any number of economic downturns. I think that we as a nation will get past the COVID-19 crisis, and we as a community here will get past the COVID-19 crisis, but I don't want to um, sugarcoat that in any way. I don't think this recovery is going to be measured um, in weeks or months. I think it's going to be measured uh, in years, and the pain we will deal with in that time is something that's going to be very real for a number of working families here in Southern Nevada and a lot of business owners, both large and small. Uh, I do believe we will get to the other side of that, and and when we do, uh, we will slow get back to the, 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 the nature of growth and investment and the, and the reasons the businesses have invested here and people have moved here. But it's going to take us some time to get there.
2: Jeremy Aguero at Applied Analysis in Las Vegas.
1: Kids are back in school, but most of them across the country are still at home and learning online. Now, that means mom or dad or both have to stay home, too, to make sure their kid or kids are okay.
2: If you can't afford a nanny or babysitter, it means you have to stay home from work, right? It tends to be moms who give up their jobs to watch the kids. That could have a big impact on the workforce in the future. KYW's Matt Leon talks to Karen Aronian, education and parenting experts and a fellow at Columbia University, about the long and short-term impacts.
5: We are in a absolute cliff dive with our ability to support our number one essential workers, as well as I would say, you know, here, again, our other set of essential workers at this moment are teachers. How can they pivot at home and pivot to meet their job demands, expectations, If we don't have childcare for them, how are they expected to spend the day with children in distance learning, be in person, distance learning, or hybrid? And as we all know, that demand is quicksand shifting daily. So we do, and we have, gone out of our way to find childcare to some extent for essential workers. So if we expect the teachers to show up who are parents too, how do we not provide them with this essential childcare?
6: And is this a situation, I would imagine there are a lot of people that have to drop out of the workforce because they can't find childcare. And is it safe to say that this is affecting women a lot more than men?
5: Right, women are the majority of our childcare Uh, providers and responsibility falls on them, it has been reported. And therein, we are looking at their struggle to hold on to jobs where we've seen a tremendous decline. Uh, It was off in extreme numbers. And we know that there's just been a small rebound. However, women are still caught in this push and pull between their number one responsibility, if they're parents, their own children, and the children they care for, if they're teachers or if they are any type of worker within our economy who's looking to show up and retain their position, of course, and be a breadwinner for their families at this time.
6: What are your concerns? I think there's the concern in the moment of of women women dropping out of the workforce out of necessity to take care of their kids. But the ripple effects of this going forward, women have fought so hard for equity in the workplace. Are you concerned that because of this we're going to see progress lost because they have to make the choice of of staying home?
5: Yes. It's been, again, widely written about and spoken about and the statistics are in that we're in a nosedive with regard to gender and racial inequity, wherein we see the, you know, moms coming out of the workforce. And there is already data pointing to the fact that they are not going to be able to rebound back into those positions. When they're, you're looking at data from depressions and situations that were happening throughout our country and the world in the past, it almost points from what you see to a three to four year rebound. And that's a great deal of time. Uh, That type of stretch can affect people's ability to ever get back in again. And of course, we're looking at prime time if they're parents, if they do have children at home where the decision is a decision that no one wants to be faced with.
6: And what kind of, aside from the the gender equity, from the pure economics, losing this many people out of the workforce, it's just got to be a drag on national economies, local economies, I mean, across the board. If you're going to talk about recovery out of the pandemic, it's going to be really hard with these types of people, with this number of people having not being able to work.
5: Yes. And then you factor in for people who are going above and beyond right now, for people who are looking to show up, there is an immense immense strain that really is incalculable. When you think about it, their performance that they must step up to if they're in the workforce, if they're you know, scaled up like teachers had to, into brand new domains virtually, into completely different ways of instructing, and the ripple effect that happens when people are pushed beyond their limits, without sleep, without their daily connectivity that they once had with friends, family, and in their work environments, the reality of having children at home, needing to negotiate how they're working in the home, outside of the home, on barely, you know, any, without any childcare, perhaps that is constant and dependable. And furthermore, the toll that it takes on the relationships, right, between whether it's family that is (laughs) in-house and uh, again we're looking at um, multiple levels of stressors that we will unfortunately be living with going forward for some time
1: scientists are finding new weapons to fight the coronavirus though neither you nor i will ever actually see these weapons at least not without a powerful microscope Scientists at the University of Pittsburgh have isolated an extremely tiny antibody they say completely and specifically neutralizes the virus. The antibody component is 10 times smaller than a full-sized antibody and has been used to create the drug AB8. The drug is seen as a potential preventative against the virus. The researchers say the drug has been highly effective in in preventing and treating the coronavirus infections in mice and hamsters during tests. The drug also reportedly does not bind to human cells, which suggests it will not have negative side effects in people.
2: I'm a big cheerleader of the tiny antibodies. Yes. You can find us on the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.
1: Like really tiny ones, really small Tiny